The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 72.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episodes. And what a fun main episode it was having Jason Liebig back on to give so much behind-the-scenes detail on Marvel Comics in 1997. I had no idea he even had a connection to Michael Golden, so when we got into that conversation and all the information he dropped there, I was like, whoa, okay, that's cool. Plus, just, he's a fun guy in general. Lots of opinions. I think he uh, spoke with some logic and perspective we wouldn't have had otherwise in our Riddle Me This segment, answering those bigger questions about the world of comic books. But yeah, so Jason, you're welcome back anytime. Always a great conversation. But you know what else is great? Is contests. And speaking of contests, we haven't had an episode in a long time, but The Wizard Files is on its way, roaring back, and we have an interview with a former Wizard staffer, Ben Plavin, who was actually the promotions manager for Wizard Magazine at this time, in 1997. And he was the one who was handling all the contests, all the inserts, all the exclusive mail-away items and things like that. So by the time you're hearing this mini-episode, that may already have dropped. In fact, he showed off a whole bunch of stuff in the video chat version of this, so I think we're going to drop that to YouTube as well, so you can see all the various exclusives that he was so proud of to have offered to readers and just had fun creating himself. But hey, speaking of the readers and fun, they love to win stuff, so let's check out Cap's Kooky Contests. All right, our first one here is the Chaos Fan Club Contest. Got a big old picture of Evil Ernie with a bloody axe in his hand. It says, listen up, Chaos Comics fans. Chaos Comics Annual Fiend Awards Ceremony is coming up this Halloween, and Chaos wants you to be there. The only catch? Read on. How to play. Here's what you gotta do. Express your fondness for Chaos Comics in some wacky, wild, and creative way. Paint a Chaos logo on your car. Shave your favorite shrubbery into a likeness of Evil Ernie. Design a Lady Death earring. We don't care what you do, just be sure to make it safe, legal, and fun. When you're done with your masterpiece, take a couple of photos, no Polaroids, por favor, and send them in. Grand prize. One lucky reader will receive an all-expenses-paid trip to the 1997 Chaos Fiend Awards Halloween Bash, October 30th to 31st, 1997, at the New Jersey Meadowlands Chiller Con. That includes flight and hotel accommodations and hanging out with the Chaos crew all weekend. The grand prize winner will also be a guest of honor and participant in the the Fiend Awards ceremony and win one Fiend Club starter kit. Whoa! Now, the one thing that might be interesting to consider with that is, you know, we've talked about in the past that Evil Ernie, they had a full, you know, costume and they were actually killing readers on stage as part of a show. So I'm wondering if they were still doing that at this time. Plus the fact that there was an actual video released of this bash, uh, which goes for quite a bit of cash, but it is on YouTube as well if you don't need the physical VHS tape. 
tape. All right, but let's find out what the runners-up get. 100 runners-up will be enrolled in the Evil Ernie Lady Death Fiend Club. Their starter kit will include the official Fiend Club membership card and number, an exclusive members-only Fiend t-shirt, an exclusive Lady Death Closon pin, an Evil Ernie Revenge poster, a one-year subscription to the quarterly Fiend Club newsletter, and more. And everyone who enters, all contest participants, will receive one copy of the latest Fiend Club newsletter and information on how to join the coolest comic club on Earth. This contest is sponsored by Chaos Comics, true fiends of fun. Alright, so the law and chaos here. Contests open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Chaos Comics, their immediate families, or anybody who thinks happy thoughts. Don't make us kill you. <laughs> Alright, and next one here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Man, that lady death's got big sales. <laughs> Got a little Monty Python joke. She's got huge tracks of land. Anyway, yeah, so that'd be an interesting contest. So I, I like these ones where, like, you get to hang out with the people creating the comics because I want to know how awkward that was for either side. Either the super fan who won or the artists and writers and everybody. You have to keep them entertained, you know? <laughs> Seems like a great idea. Then you're like, ah, sit over there, kid. All right, next one here, though, the HBO Home Video Spawn Contest. Don't miss out. This August, Spawn fans everywhere will be rushing to their video or comic book store to pick up the home video version of the popular HBO animated Spawn that premiered May 16th. And now, HBO Home Video is granting you the opportunity to win not only the Spawn home video, but some other awesome prizes too. Want a chance at winning a limited edition Spawn animation cell? How about one signed by the master Spawnster himself, Todd McFarlane? Interested? Here's what you gotta do. Simply fill out the coupon below and send it in. Think you can handle that, Spawnite? Now, that's interesting. They literally, you don't have to do anything. They're just like, yeah, just, uh, we'll do a random drawing. I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of less fun. But it does say, grand prize, a special limited edition framed animation cell signed by Todd McFarlane. And that's not all. You also get an HBO Home Video Spawn t-shirt and the HBO Home Video Spawn cassette. First prize, each winner will get the HBO Home Video Spawn cassette. Not too shabby. Second prize, 25 lucky winners will each get one HBO Home Video Spawn t-shirt. Cool. I don't know. Nowadays, it feels like the t-shirt might be more collectible than actually getting the spawn home video thing. Now, let's see. Legal spawnings. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Todd McFarlane Productions, HBO Home Video, their immediate families, and evil monkeys. Damn those evil monkeys. <laughs> oh, they will never stop being funny, those evil monkeys. So the uh, second joke here is in a different spot than normal. It says, no mechanical reproductions of complete forms are accepted, but you can photocopy the entry form before filling it out. And if you don't want to mess up your magazine, I'm a fire starter. Twisted fire starter. They must have been listening to a lot of prodigy fat of the land there in the Congers offices. <laughs> kind of random here, but uh, if you ever attended a Weird Al concert in the 90s, heck, I haven't been for about 10 years, so it's possible that he is still doing this, but he would always play these interstitial videos and sketches, and a lot of times they were parody videos, pieces that he produced when he would do Al TV on MTV, and I remember one specifically was making fun of Firestarter by Prodigy, so he was dressed with like, you know, the bald hair in the middle, and then like the little almost Wolverine-style red spikes on the side and, you know, pierced tongue and nose ring and all that stuff in a sewer, except that he was saying, I got this stupid haircut, this really stupid haircut. <laughs> so that was uh, his parody of Firestarter. But while we're on the topic of Spawn, I do want to mention 
mention on our Heroes in Motion tier on Patreon. What do we do over there? Well, the great benefit for your $7 a month, in addition to getting exclusive access to our Discord server, where you can just talk about 90s comics all you want with us, back and forth, we're sharing stuff. We're also giving you a full bonus episode of the podcast every month that is part of our 90s Super Cinema series, where we let our patrons vote on what comic book or superhero-based movie they want us to cover from the 90s. And so for the month of April, it is going to be the 1997 Spawn film. And we're going to have a lot of fun getting into that, Michael, Pete, and myself. So if that's something that interests you now, you know, previously we did Batman Forever, we did The Phantom, maybe those weren't your cup of tea, but everybody has something to say about Spawn. And you might want to see if our opinions match yours. So seven bucks a month, even if you just want that one episode for that moment in time, you also get all the other benefits, like scanned issues of the magazine. You get, you know, the uncut versions of the episodes and so much more. So something to consider. Uh, But let's get into the last contest here. This is the Sailor Moon Write It and Win contest. Sailor Moon is one of the hottest manga properties on the market today. But why? Exciting characters, intriguing storylines, breathtaking artwork? We want to know. How to enter. Just tell us in about 100 words why you love Sailor Moon. The more impressive the entry, the better chance you have of winning these exciting prizes. Grand prize. Signed original Sailor Moon art by Naoko Takuchi. A copy of Sailor Moon Uprint software for the PC and Macintosh. A one-year subscription to Mixzine, a Sailor Moon video, and a Mixzine t-shirt. Never heard of Mixzine. It's got two X's in it. First prize. Five readers will each get Sailor Moon Uprint software and Sailor Moon video and one Mixzine t-shirt. Second prize. Ten readers will each get a one-year subscription to Mixzine, a Sailor Moon video, and a Mixzine t-shirt. This month's contest is sponsored by Mix Publications. Mixing it up like nobody's business. Alright, legal text here. Contest open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Mixed Publications, their immediate families, or the people who say manga comics. Manga is Japanese for comics. In essence, you're saying comics comics. It sounds stupid, so stop it. Hey, it's educational and snarky. What do you know? And the last one here, Wizard Press is not responsible for lost, late, misdirected, or mutilated entries. Did you ever see a Sailor Moon? It's not a pretty sight. Hmm. Now, I'm assuming they mean an actual sailor pulling down his pants and mooning ya. So, (laughs) otherwise, yeah, I don't know if that's a nautical term, a Sailor Moon. I wonder where that came from. What is the origin of the character? So many questions! But if your question is, do we have more fun ahead with a special guest we absolutely do so let's review some 90s comics with a segment we haven't done in a while it's time for robin's reading rainbow All right, so let's get into a little bit of comic book review for this mini episode. You know, we love to uh, invite on special guests that have a perspective, that have a familiarity. And one of the comics that was coming around uh, in Wizard Magazine at this time in their pick section every month was something from acclaimed comics called Quantum and Woody. And whenever I say Quantum and Woody to people, they give me a blank stare. Nobody seems to remember Quantum and Woody. But there is one man who I feel like I could always reach out to to have an understanding to 
have an opinion. And when I mentioned Quantum and Woody to William Bruce West, he answered the call. So, Will, thanks for coming on here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I am curious, uh, when I reached out to you and offered this chance to discuss Quantum and Woody, what was the first thing that came to mind for you? What were you remembering about the series that stood out to you most? I couldn't remember a ton about it. Like, I remembered the first issue. Like, that was, like, in my head. And I have this. You can't see it on the podcast, but it's the director's cut trade paperback. So it's, like, the first four issues. And I've had it for, like, a decade now. But I guess I only read that first issue in there because I reread it in preparation. And I was like, I don't remember this. I don't remember this. <laughs> so it was a nice refresher on, like, I always thought it was a cool concept. But now now I just got off eBay trying to track down the rest of the series. Like that's how good it is to me. Yeah. Like it, for me, like I have my originals uh, that I bought back in 1997 with when this launched, like it's one of those things that was just like, I remember on the shelf at my local comic book store, it had a painted cover and I'm like, I'm going to buy this because it has a painted cover. That's what you did back in. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so, uh, and I picked it up and as I read it, I was just like, wow, this is like the funniest comic I've ever read. It is the, like the edgiest comic I've read, not from like a violence and gore standpoint, but the top it dares to approach and discuss and in yes. such an irreverent manner that was the big thing in the 90s oh it's irreverent it's dysfunctional this book really is and it doesn't it, in a way that's not offensive and so that, right, that's what right. I find so interesting about it but I bought the first five issues I've had the first five issues you know that I've read and reread all these years and if it had stopped there I would have been fine luckily it ran for 17 issues then they came back for a five issue miniseries in 2014 the original team and I think we should speak about about the creative team behind this first then we'll get into the concept it is written by christopher priest formerly jim owlsley and md bright is the artist and so when you think of those names will what would you associate them most with well priest i mean like everybody knows priest but like the the first thing that comes to mind for me is like his renowned black panther run you know but like he was just a figure from like late 80s to early 90s especially marvel like he was just he was a fixture so he's done so much but it's like the first thing that comes to mind is that black panther run md bright i didn't realize like his art like once i did some research on him i was like oh that was him like he did the emerald dawn i think series yeah. for dc and he was the penciler on power man and iron fist so like i really like his work i i think he's like a storyboard artist now but like i wish he was still working in comics because it was like it's really detailed yeah it's, it's great detail he does wonderful expressions and like for me i only knew them all these years years from quantum and woody i was just like that those are the guys and then i started like doing my research over the years i was like oh okay so christopher priest he wrote the ray ongoing series for dc i was like i have read his stuff and i'm sure in like my many just old back issues of spider-man comics he did you know so some of those when he was jim elsley you know i'm sure that's in there somewhere and i'm just like oh okay in empty bright i have the emerald dawn books now but it's not anything i would have known back then so always to me quantum and woody they're an amazing 
team. So just to give people who don't know about this book, the Fabian Nicieza, who was the editor-in-chief at Acclaim at this time, is the one that gave them the push because he basically said, hey, you did a great job on those last issues on the final run of Power Man and Iron Fist. It gave it a real odd couple vibe. Can you bring that back? And so when the, they, this came out from Acclaim Comics. It's one of those things where like, I know I had picked up like their Exo Manowar. I wasn't a fan of their reinterpretation of that. And this was a wholly original thing. Acclaim had been doing all the Valiant titles and bringing them back. And this was one of those, they're saying, okay, let's let's do something new. And how would you describe the basic premise from the first issue that you know better than all the rest of the series? Well, you've got Eric and you've got Woody. And they're kind of like an odd couple, but it flips kind of conventions. Eric is the black one who's straight laced and by the book and follows the rules. And then Woody is the white one who is the comic relief. He is the ladies man. He's the jokester. He doesn't take things too seriously. They grow up together because their fathers are working on like a top secret project together. So they were like best friends up through their teen and then one day Woody just disappears he just like leaves and Eric doesn't understand why so like in the the years that pass he's just been internalizing like one of his classmates makes a reference that like oh maybe he left because you were black and like he he builds his future on that like that's that's like the the lie he tells himself is like oh i wasn't worthy i i was he did leave because i was black and like all this stuff and it it deals with a lot of like the social aspects of things because eric is kind of like carlton banks like he is this like he they live in greenwich connecticut he is a prep school kid he doesn't understand like he's not necessarily in touch with his culture Culture, but he plays the card when it's convenient. <laughs> that that kind of situation. So then their their fathers die in an accident. They're reunited at the funeral, and then they have to deal with the baggage of like, why did you abandon me? I didn't abandon you. You abandoned me. And there's a lot of arguing that wouldn't make sense in today's world because you're like, oh, they could have just emailed each other. But like, it's kind of <laughs> like, why didn't you call me? Well, I didn't have your phone number. Why didn't you write me a letter? I heard you moved. You know, that kind of thing. And then when they decide to team up to catch the their father's murderer then they end up getting powers and that like kind of gets the ball rolling right and so that's what's interesting because the book starts out in flashback and it does a lot yes. of flashbacks that very much feel like 90s indie cinema you know it's just like you know each little flashback has its own title and it usually has something to do with like what's the funny thing happening in the flashback as their as their kids and what i realized like you know as i've thought about the series and revisited it over the years like the most endearing part obviously is the relationship the superpowers and the sci-fi element just adds a little flavor but it's all about about their relationship and I realized the other thing I think that appealed to me most is growing up in my neighborhood my best friend Brandon was black and when we got to junior high he moved away he's just gone and I'm just like wait what, what? I don't understand you know and we, and we lost touch and then we reconnected on Facebook years later and all that you know but it was one of those things where I could I could actually kind of see oh okay this is interesting like there's something in my own history that's helping me relate a little bit to this book like Brandon was also slightly more well to do like his family had 
the air hockey table. They had the Nintendo. They had the Mickey Mouse phone. They had all the cool stuff. And my family and I were going to garage sales every Saturday, you know? So again, I'm going to feel all that there. But what I love about the, yeah, just like the backstory that they have is obviously they care about each other. They love each other, but they are so fed up with each other. Like, <laughs> and there's that that resentment that has built up all those years. Like you said, that because of somebody's stupid comment, Eric has just ingrained that into his life. That, oh yeah, that's that's what happened. That's that's 100% right. what it was. And later on, you find out, no, like Woody was taken away. He's living in the inner city. He's very poor. He has to like become a criminal. Like life is not good for Woody, but Eric's imagining. He's like, like later on when they have a fight, he's talking about, it's like, our fathers were loaded. They had plenty of money. But he's just like, you don't know anything. Yeah, <laughs> He's like, right, and so, right. And then the interesting thing about the, the lab accident is that they're, what their fathers are working on, they find these bands that they have to put on. And when they're going to punch each other, like they, they got into a fight at the funeral and now they're going to, to have a fight in the lab and they clang. That's the, you know, they use that a lot. Clang. They're two gauntlets together and there's a big explosion. It destroys the lab. You know, they end up out on the lawn. Like they got launched out there. And now what they realize is they have to hit their bands together every 24 hours or they're they're just made of energy now and they will dissipate so they're stuck together but not only that financially woody is stuck with eric because woody's dad was mad that Woody chose to go with his mom and made Eric's dad the executor of his estate and said Eric's dad is dead. Now Eric is the executor of Woody's estate. He can't have his money until he's 45 except what Eric gives him. So he's just like, ah! <laughs> so again, there's just all these dynamics in play. But I'm curious, well, like, when you think about the humor of this book, what is it that gives you a chuckle or what are some moments that, that stand out to you? Well, it's definitely like you were saying, it's about the relationships because the, the humor comes from the fact that they're terrible heroes. <laughs> you know, like, the, the, their first mission out is horrible. I mean, like, the cops already know their identities. <laughs> you know, like, they get foiled at every turn. Like, when it comes to their hero work, that's where a lot of the humor comes from. Eric tries to be Batman. Like, he's very stoic and just gruff, and he wants to, like, get villains and the police to respect him while like Woody is off hitting on women that they save and that kind of situation so that's really where like the humor comes from because when they deal with each other once you get past the surface you really do get to those like social issues of like what's going on like it's a very edgy comic like if it came out today nobody would really say anything I mean you would have a certain group online who would think like oh it's pushing an agenda but like considering when it did come out it gets pretty deep there at some points so i that's what i found to be kind of like i don't want to say revolutionary but that's definitely what set it apart from like everything else on the stands at the time yeah, hundred percent. And to the point where, like, in that first issue, they use the N word. Like, it's, yes, it's right there. And then later on, they do. I think it's the fifth issue. They do a whole thing at the beginning where they explain we cannot use the N word in this book as much as we're going to be saying it for the purposes of the script. So we are going to replace it with the word noogie. And yes. so, like, so they use that throughout. And then there's this whole conversation where you know, again, Eric is not from the streets. Eric is not. Not somebody who understands anything, you know, about culture outside of West Point, you know, going to military school and all those things. And so 
when they show up in, in Woody's neighborhood and they're working on, you know, busting this bad guy. And one of Woody's friends comes up and calls him Noogie and all this stuff. And Eric has this conversation with Woody later. He's like, you can't use that word. And he shouldn't be using that word. And he's like, he's using it as a term of affection. You don't even understand. Like, there's just, there's so many things that it's like topics for discussion for college classes. You know, <laughs> like, but right, it's right. with humor and fun. Yeah. Because the friend calls Eric a Noogie and he's like, how do you know I'm black? And he's like, you're black. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's almost like he just uses it for anybody. Yeah, <laughs> but I also found like the political stuff was interesting because they throw around a lot. They're like, "Oh, we have to say this in case any like liberal crybabies decide to like protest or whatever." And I was thinking, like, I don't know if it would be liberals who were upset about this in this day and age. But, yeah. <laughs> but it just shows you how things have changed. <laughs> yeah, well, and one of the funny elements that they introduce, which is just kind of like out there absurdist, is at a certain point, they go on this like globetrotting adventure because Eric has this little book that's his cheat book that he always busts out. It tells him like scientific things. It helps him translate things. And he finds this knife in this bad guy's place and he, on the hilt, he translates all the information. And Woody keeps telling him, this thing was made in China. It is not an ancient artifact. And he's like, no, it's telling us to go here. And so they go all over the world. And as part of that process, they end up with a goat. And so yes. they just bring a goat back with them and the goat just lives with them and it it's not like on the cover of its first appearance it's wearing a cape it's got a mask or it's eating its mask you know domino mask thing but it's not a superhero it's just a goat and it just exists like for no reason sometimes it saves the day sort of but it's really just there you know to create <laughs> absurdist laughs when you see the goat hanging around but they actually even eventually made an action figure of the goat yes it's so funny like <laughs> But uh, the other thing that I find so interesting is I would be so curious to see Christopher Priest have a conversation with Dwayne McDuffie because I feel like they both yes. covered similar topics, but in such different ways. Like Dwayne McDuffie seems like very talented, but he's the Eric. He's the quantum, right? He's so, He feels so straight-laced. Christopher Priest feels like the guy who's just kind of like, hey, you know, things are what they are. You know, let's have a little fun as we're exploring this. Because even in that director's cut trade you have, Will, there is a scene that was, you know, not in the comics that were published, but only for that trade where they actually are trying on different superhero costumes. Like they dress yes. up as Power Man and Iron Fist, Green Lantern and Falcon and all that stuff. And then they put on Milestone character yes. costumes. You know, you have Icon and I think Cobalt was the other one. And they're just like, hell no. You know, like they're, yeah. they're so against it. I was like, did Christopher Priest have a problem with Dwayne McDuffie? Like, did he not like Milestone comics? Like, oh, it just feels like there's something there. So I'd be very curious. He was, the, he was basically the biggest black creator at the time who wasn't part of milestone yeah so it, it makes you wonder <laughs> Yeah, but I, I guess uh, the thing that I, I wonder about Quantum and Woody with the art, because we haven't talked too much about it, what M.D. Bright brings to this, what stands out to you uh, when you when you think about the Quantum and Woody, the way it's portrayed in an artistic sense? Because I do think it has some unique elements to it. That's a good point. I really, like I said before, like the detail work and the line work really stood out to me. I wasn't really into like... I didn't think M.D. Bright did expressions necessarily well, but I like the action scenes. And he was like, he was good from like tight scenes to like double page spreads of them, like climbing up the side of a building, that kind of deal. I was really impressed. And I was just kind of like, what happened to this guy? Like, where is he? You know? 
Yeah, it does feel like with the action scenes, if you took out the word balloons, if the dialogue wasn't there and you were just looking at the action, a lot of it, you'd be like, oh, this is cool. Like, it's laid out very well. I mean, there'll be like a full page quantum, you know, posing, looking awesome. Or like you say, the double page spreads. But what I love about it is he leaves space for the jokes. Like there'll be a panel with a setup, then there's a reaction with no words. It's just like that beat. And then the next panel hits with, you know, the punchline and you're just like, oh. Oh my goodness. Like it, like they are so in sync in the way that they are putting things together. But I think also overall, both in the writing and the art, it feels like they are deconstructing superheroes. Like yes. you know, from that perspective, you know, it's not it's something that was done before, you know, Alan Moore, for example, but very serious, you know, very grim. And this is again, you're having fun playing with the tropes, but at the same time, you know, adding a little like, for example, you know, you talked about the the issue where they're going up a building, Batman and Robin style from the city. 66 series and basically everything that happens in that issue points to why that is a terrible way to go about <laughs> breaking in on a bad guy you know like you said the cops are gonna find out who you are there's kids up on the top with super soakers that are spraying them and making fun of them calling them butt man like you know, yeah it's like all this stuff happening and you know they fall at one point and quantum shoots up his grappling hook but it hits an air conditioner and that breaks off like it's just like nothing is gonna work out for you plus then the police are just like they think they're a couple experiencing marital problems or whatever you know <laughs> when he's like we're not a couple you know so just everything just falls apart and i just think what what they do so well is like Again, like you said, Eric is so self-serious and he's so determined to fulfill the idea of what a costumed hero is that he's he doesn't think logically like it seems logical, but it's not. Woody is the voice of reason most of the time, even if he is impulsive, you know, right, and so right. so they have a lot going on there. But would you recommend Quantum and Woody to people? But how do you think you would sell it? Like, who is this for? I think it's for comic fans who like superheroes but don't take them too seriously and are looking for something that doesn't have the baggage of continuity because most superhero franchises you need like a PhD to understand the, the chronology and the, the continuity and that kind of deal. Like this is easy to just pick up and jump into this world and even though this is like a 25 year old story, it feels like it could have been written today. You know, like I definitely would recommend this to people and it's not too much of a commitment like we're saying it's like 17 issues this first series and then they come back in 2014 so yeah i'm looking forward to reading more of it because i've only read this first volume so i'll definitely be reading the other issues yeah and for those who who are want to find it easily i know will you're trying to find the physical copies but it's on comiXology so if anybody's stuck with comiXology after <laughs> everybody blew up oh, i can't believe what they've done that you could read both volumes there which is great now, they have rebooted it several times, tried to do it again, even like using the same format, like you said. And that's the thing is that it jumps around in time. They're not trying to solve their dad's murder, really. Slowly, that's sprinkled in throughout the series, but that's not like the main focus. They're just trying to be do-gooders. And, and so like their you know, individual issues have sometimes multiple little missions they've gone on in them. But if I was going to sell it to somebody and say, you know, you need to read Quantum and Woody, for me, the main thing is, like you 
you say, you don't take superheroes too seriously, but if you like humor with heart, if you know, if you like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, for example, I think it fits very well in that because it's very heightened and it is very just kind of like the banter is nonstop. Honestly, like without hyperbole, it's the best comic book banter I've ever read. And I try to find comedic books as much as I can. But like I say, having read it and reread it over and over again, it entertains every single time. It's like your favorite sitcom. It's like your favorite movie. Like it never loses its zing. And like you say, even more so nowadays, you know, the topics are relevant. And also it doesn't feel of its time. And I think that's the main thing, like from the art, from anything else. It's just, it was always unique. It continues to be unique. And I've heard over the years that it's been optioned for, you know, television series and all that. Please get this done. We got so many streaming services out there. Do Quantum and Woody. We need it. Do you, in your mind, because they actually did say that they based it on the relationship between Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson and White Men Can't Jump. That's why his name right. is Woody. But can you think of anybody nowadays as we close out your own casting call here? Can you think of anybody you would cast as Eric and Woody if, if they were to do a series? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, I could see Michael B. Jordan as Eric. Yeah. Because I don't see, he doesn't really have a lot of humor to him. <laughs> You know, like, a new legacy. He walked in for a minute. He got humor out of his name, right? <laughs> that was so it. You're the one who saw that. <laughs> <laughs> and then for Woody, wow, who could be Woody? Because I was trying to think of somebody a little bit younger. Because, like, I don't know if there's so many smart Alec young actors these days. Like, it's a different style of humor. Right. And, and so that, that's why I was trying to pull that out. Because I was just like, uh, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name right now. From Community, Joel. Oh, Joel McHale. Uh, Joel McHale. He, you know. he, he works. You know, another person who would be great, but you couldn't necessarily do it now, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, Owen Wilson. Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, you're right. And more so because he, yeah, he does have the, hey man, just kind of the laid back right. style that would just be play against you know, somebody like Michael B. Jordan. I love that. Yeah, but you're right. He's <laughs> quite a bit older now. That's for sure. But good. Well, well, thank you so much for giving me a chance to <laughs> discuss Quantum and Woody with you because like I said, it just brings my heart joy. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Like, I'm really looking forward to reading more of this. And like, this would have sat on my shelf for years if you hadn't done this. So <laughs> I appreciate it. I hope more people will read it. We can hear from you on social media and everybody else will get a conversation going. But where do you want to point people, Will, if they want to get more of what you're up to? I'm on Twitter at William B. West, or you can check out my website, westweekever.com, where we look at the week that was in popular culture. All right. Awesome. It's always fun to hear two fanboys talking about their comics opinions, right? But what about professional fanboys? Wizard like to give their opinions also. So let's check out what they had to say in The Skinny. All right, I just wanted to read this particular review for Ghost Rider comics at this time. Because I'll be honest, I didn't even know they were publishing Ghost Rider in 1997. It's one of those things where, uh, as part of the Devil's Reign crossover with Top Cow, I was reading it and I was like, okay, this is interesting. I'd never seen Ghost Rider look like this before. So I want to find out 
how Wizard was viewing what Marvel was doing. It says here, Ghost Rider, Confusion rides this book to death. And the creative team at this time was written by Ivan Velez Jr. with art by Pop Mahan and John Lowe. What you need to know, Ghost Rider is a demonic spirit of vengeance that is tied to Danny Ketch, brother to the original Ghost Rider, John Blaze. Ketch allows Ghost Rider to take over his body in order to avenge the spilling of innocent blood. The good. The basic concept behind this book is a powerful one. The twist of having a demonic character with a flaming skull as the hero is neat, straightforward, and makes for an awesome visual. But... And that's literally all they have to say. The idea of Ghost Rider is good, but the bad makes up the rest of this page. <laughs> Unfortunately, the book strayed far from its basic concept. In fact, so much so, there is little to no explanation whatsoever for what's going on in this title. Ghost Rider is currently wrapped up in so many complex family-related plot lines, Ghost Rider is actually an ancestor of Blaze and Catch, that you can't tell what's going on. Unless you've been a longtime follower of the book, you'll be lost. This problem is amplified with the overuse of supporting characters such as Blaze, Ketch's mother, his dead sister, and a newfound cousin. And even faithful readers are in for a rough ride. You'll be taken on pointless tangents by sudden, pointless, appearances of pointless guest stars. Howard the Duck appears out of nowhere and serves only to introduce Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur into the book. The resulting fights seem out of place and the whole experience takes you on two issues worth of distraction from the comic's main plot lines. Sadly, the book doesn't allow readers to enjoy the Ghost Rider character himself. His current colorful costume looks too clownish for a spirit of vengeance to wear, and his motorcycle is equally farcical. What happened to his original black leather look? A look that was far more appropriate. Beyond the costume, it's not as if the writer actually does much in the book. You'll understand that he has super strength, but he rarely uses his patented penance stare. And when he does, it's done without explanation. The stare makes his victims feel the pain that he or she is inflicted on others. There are other various problems in the title. The cartoony art is inappropriate for Ghost Rider, the pacing is off with fight scenes that drag on and on, the dialogue is corny at times, the crises that come up are forced, constantly coming out of nowhere with no backstory, there's one panel in issue number 81 where Blaze worries about his missing kids with no explanation, actually leaving you to wonder why he isn't looking for them. The buzz. The art problems might come to an end in August as original Ghost Rider penciler Javier Saltares returns to the title with number 89. Check out the flashback month issue for a preview. Hopefully the black leather and motorcycle will follow. The Skinny, when it debuted in 1990, Ghost Rider had an understandable hero in great, straightforward stories with dark, moody artwork. Now there's no such baggage attached to this clownish spirit of vengeance that it makes the title extremely difficult to follow. The Verdict, one, which means crapola. <laughs> So wow, Wizard not on board for this version of Ghost Rider. Although speaking of that flashback month issue, I did mention on the podcast when I read all those, that was so great. Like that that was a really, really good story. Talked about how their mother was the original Ghost Rider in their family line. I'm not up on all the lore, but I thought that particular twist was a, a nice revelation. And I will also mention, speaking of the flashback month, you know, on our main episode, I thought it was so cool that Jason told us it was a retailer that caused the negative one issues to be a thing, that it wasn't just going to be stories, you know, in the same numbering. So, one more gimmick, but the retailers wanted it. It wasn't Marvel trying to get more cash out of you. Alright, well there you go, a little bit of the skitty, but hey, why don't we check out the top 10 comics list for June 1997.
All right, something tells me the writer of this top 10 comics list is uh, starting to lose their mind. So let's check it out here. In the number one spot, JLA number one. Green. That's what JLA number one has going for it. The color green. For starters, just look at the characters. Martian Manhunter is green. Green Lantern, quite naturally, is also green. Aquaman has them green tights going on and occasionally is said to be a little green around the gills. The cover itself is a wonderful shade of green. The issue itself is going for a fair amount of greenbacks, as a quick check of our wild and woolly price guide will show you. And fans from coast to coast who did latch onto a copy are green with envy. Yeah, green. That's where it's at baby <laughs> and now we have witchblade number one hey it's the old one two shuffle last month witchblade was on top and jla number one came in the two hole this month it's a little vice versa action which leads us to ask if this were dancing what would it look like sarah pazini and superman doing a foxtrot maybe witchy poo and flash dancing the lombada the forbidden dance or maybe wonder woman dancing with witchblade yeah we could see that chicks always dance with other chicks one thing is for sure witchblade number one has been doing the hip hippie hippie shake at the top of the list for quite some time now. Now number three is Dark Child. She's tiny, she's 2D, she's just a little loony. Yeah, she's Dark Child, and as cool as Tiny Toon Adventures may be, we think it would be better if Miss Ariel Child was one of the Tiny Toons. Picture this, Furball, he's the mini Sylvester the cat type, gets his tail caught in the door. Dark Child tries to get him unstuck, but panics and channels some brimstone stinking fire-breathing demon thing. The demon eats Furball. We see a TVM rating all over this. <laughs> so Dark Child had actually climbed up to number three from number four which is interesting uh, but I will say there is a Dark Child half comic that was offered in this issue as well so Dark Child mania you know for as long as it lasts something I predict will not continue on into 1998. All right, number four, the Darkness number one black variant cover. Hey, it's the old 3-4 shuffle. You see, last month, the Darkness number one was... Ah, never mind. We did that routine already. Anyhow, it seems like darn near anything Garth Ennis touches turns to gold these days. It also seems that practically anything by Top Cow turns to gold too. Put those two together and you get one monster hit. Let's just hope this title has enough steam to keep it going through Garth's six-month vacation from the book. He just got engaged, you see. Gotta plan a wedding and stuff. Ooh, see, that's kind of the detail you don't hear, right? A lot of times they just say, oh, okay, this new creative team's coming on. Now you know why. Hmm. Uh, speaking of Top Cow, though, keep in mind that coming up, our next episode is going to be our Top Cow special. So we have one of you listeners out there, Rob is going to be joining us, and our old friend Gabe, two guys who are obsessed with Top Cow, which I am not. So I'm very curious to see what they have to say, see if they could win me over. But back to the list here. Number five is JLA number two. About time someone at DC woke up and smelled the toast. Try this on for size. The Justice League America lineup circa 1984. Martian Manhunter. Vibe. Who? Gypsy? Double Who, Steel, not Shaquille O'Neal, but an earlier, cheesier version, Vixen, Who Again, and Zatanna, nice fishnets. The title was cancelled due to Small Wonder, Low Sales. Today's JLA, oh, there's Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, and The Flash. Now it's a runaway hit. It's all in the players you put on the field, boys. Number six, Fantastic Four, number one. What's old is new again, and what's new again is going to be old again soon, we think. At least, that looks like the general upshot of the whole Heroes Reborn, Heroes Return hoo-ha. The project was controversial, but it didn't 
least one thing and made people read and actually care about Fantastic Four for the first time since about, oh, since about issue 129 or so. Yes, sirree, Bob. Fantastic Four was the shining light of Heroes Reborn, and fans are still scrambling after this issue. Astro City number six is in the number seven spot. It's like this. Every day, more and more people turn on to Astro City, the big ensemble cast superhero title. The toughest issue for the Federated Fanboys of America to get their clammy meat hooks on? This one right here. You see, this one was the last issue of the first series, and orders had tapered off from the always big number one levels and hadn't got to the hot damn it, this is pretty good stuff, so you ought to read it. Increase. It's a darn tough issue to get, and it wasn't even on the list last month. Number eight is Witchblade number 10, the Darkness Zero variant cover. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, Witchblade number 10, or the Darkness number zero, as many people like to call it, features the two top characters Top Cow has going for it wrapped into one issue. It's also the lead-in to the hyper-successful Darkness series. Is it any wonder it's the one of the most coveted back issues going today? Didn't think so. Word to the wise, keep your eyes peeled as a disgusting concept as that may be for this fall's Darkness Witchblade crossover. It gets rolling in Witchblade number 17. All right, now another book that was mentioned during our Michael Golden discussion, Jason Liebig said that Jason Pearson, who was handling Body Bags, the creative writer and artist behind that, uh, said he was a big Michael Golden fan, but he made it up on this list to the number nine spot. For those of you who either weren't here last month or have no short-term memory to speak of, allow us to reiterate. Body Bags is a hyper-violent story of family values. It's basically a warm and fuzzy tale of a father and a daughter. Only thing is, Daddy's a professional killer, and by the time we get to the end of a four-issue miniseries, Daddy Daddy's little girl is doing pretty well in the family trade herself. There's shootings, stabbings, lacerations, and contusions galore. Fun for the whole family. And finally, number 10 is Preacher number 1. Looking for something a little edgy? A bit provocative? Something chock full of booze, vampires, explosions, knife wounds, and the occasional rude treatment of armadillos? Then look no further than Preacher, my friend. This wonderful tale of sin and redemption, betrayal and friendship, and tequila and lime has turned out to be quite a hit. Heck, more than two years after its release, Preacher number one is still one of the most coveted issues west of the Pecos. That's the mark of a title that's here to stay. So yeah, pretty interesting uh, list here. I mean, it, it's crazy to see how much of it, uh, you know, is top cow. You know, it's like Witchblade, Witchblade, Darkness, you know, but then uh, not too shabby uh, for DC either with three books there as well. So hey, it was a, a nice varied list. Let's put it that way. It wasn't uh, all in one direction. All right. Let's get into our next list here. You know what it is. That's right. We're going to talk about our top 10 heroes and villains. Top of the heap, as always, it's Wolverine. Now there's something you don't see too often. Happy Wolvie. He's just got kind of a smirk on his face. Usually Wolverine's got a serious mean going on. Most of the time he's all pumped up and ready to go off on some would-be world conqueror, some mutant hater, just some loudmouth at a dive bar and a little bit south of Saskatoon. But here he's looking all happy. Wonder why? Maybe those are chopsticks in his hands and he's eating some good sushi. Maybe he's happy because he actually has a nose in this panel. Maybe he knows that sidebirds are in again and he's all fashionable and stuff. Or maybe he just knows he's the 
the most popular comic character going. All right, number two is Spider-Man, and he's got really weird eye shape in this one that's like doing sad eyes, which is not possible with that mask. But it says here, now there's something you don't see too often, sad Spidey. Isn't Spider-Man supposed to be Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky? The guy with a quip and a joke in any situation? Yeah, that's usually the way it is, but things have been rough for the old web-slinger recently. After all, Doc Ock is back in the house, and Spidey just had to go toe to fang with Morbius, the living vampire. That's enough to wear anyone down. But with five monthly titles, five, a hyper-popular cartoon show, and his mug plaster on everything from coffee cups to underoos, you'd think Petey would get a little happy, don't you? Number three is Spawn. Because his picture, he is uh, wide-mouthed and screaming, Me am a monkey spawn! Me am bizarre amalgamation of Saigor and Spawn! Maybe me get drawn like this for a few issues and you buy new action figure! Rawr! Give me banana! Yeah, Spawn is better than the chameleon when it comes to being the man of a thousand faces. In his career, he's looked like Al Simmons, a traditional Spawn, the ever-meaty hamburger head Spawn, medieval Spawn, and the overhyped new face Spawn they rolled out in Spawn number 50. This guy goes through faces like babies go through diapers. But for some reason, no matter what he looks like, fanboys dig him mucho. Number four is Batman, and I don't know what is going on here because it looks like he has a Jason Voorhees hockey mask on. But it's very strange. It says here, Yowza, what's this? An unplanned crossover between Pulp Fiction and Batman? Is Bats going to give up chasing down the Joker and instead go after the Gimp? Isn't the notion of Batman meeting Gen 13 stupid enough? Maybe, maybe not. The fine folks at DC Comics just love to send Bats to other comic universes and Elseworlds aplenty for one big reason. He's the most marketable long john wearing crime fight and secret identity packing guy they got so you'll see bats not only in his four monthly titles at a quarterly but also linked up with the aliens predator spider-man and anyone tougher than richie rich speaking of the batman gen 13 crossover so we posted a little news item on there from this issue and we remember we talked about j scott campbell and alex garner leaving gen 13 to work on batman gen 13 and jeff marriott our past guest on the wizard files from wildstorm said that he actually blames Brandon Choi, the writer, for not backing down to DC's demands. He said, I understand that DC has this very popular character they have to protect, and Brandon wouldn't change the story to suit their needs, so it just fell apart. And Jeff said he worked so hard to put it all together. So that's a perspective we hadn't had before. So thanks for that, Jeff. Little bit of history. All right, but now in the number five spot is Witchblade. In a perfect world, all women would look like they were drawn by Michael Turner. Unfortunately, our world is filled with baked Lay's chips that taste like styrofoam flooding rivers and Republicans. Therefore, anyone can see that our world is not perfect. So we have to settle for just one woman who looks like she's drawn by Michael Turner. She looks that way because she is drawn by him. Witchblade? Think witchy's popular? You're right. Think Mr. Turner's got a lot to do with that? Right again. And number six, wouldn't you know it, it's the darkness. Jeez Louise, this guy just drips evil. Check it out. Jackie Estacado is a hitman, a professional killer. That's a nasty profession. And at least one step lower than being an editor on some self-styled guide to comics. <laughs> Add to that the fact that this darkness power itself is 100% concentrated evil, and the fact that Jackie's written by Garth Ennis, and he get a guy who'd be less trustworthy as a babysitter than Charles Manson. Bad, bad man. Number seven is Deadpool. Damn, but that Deadpool guy sure has 
has a big mouth. He's always flapping his gums, which any fanboy can tell you could get you into trouble. But whereas your typical comic geek is only going to get his underwear yanked up the crack of his ass by talking too much, Deadpool usually has to deal with more extreme consequences, like tangling with the Hulk, for example. But it's Deadpool's big yap, along with his book's funky Ed McGinnis art style, that endears him to fans everywhere. Number eight is Preacher. Speaking of being an endearing character, Jesse Custer ain't one. Heck, he's got practically everyone he can think of wanting to take a piece out of his hide. The Grail, that double secret religious organization wants him dead. So does the Texas Highway Patrol. Even Heaven wants to put him in his place. And his girlfriend Tulip is pretty miffed at him. The only ones on Preacher's side? Cassidy, his drunken Irish vampire buddy, and the legions of fans who buy Preacher every month. Number nine is Fairchild from Gen 13. She's stronger than Ajax, more powerful than a Buick, able to knock out big gorillas with a single punch. See Gen 13 number 15. And now she's pissed. In this shot, Kate and Fairchild's looking like one girl you don't want to push around. Personally speaking, we're a little intimidated by women who could beat us up, so we're inclined to think that maybe she really has no reason to look so angry. We think she's just furthering the stereotype of the feisty redhead. That saucy little devil girl. Mmm. <laughs> I don't know, wizard. Alright, number 10. Savage Dragon. Yeah, that Savage Dragon. Meet the Timex Watch of Superheroes. The dragon takes a licking and keeps on ticking. He gets his ass kicked more than anybody this side of Paste Pot Pete. He's had both arms ripped off, had a hole blown in his guts the size of a beach ball, and was even kicked off the Image Softball team because he couldn't wear a cap thanks to that damn fin on his head. Good thing he's got a dedicated fan following because the rest of his life is pretty rough. So there you go. Now, for our... <gasps> Mort of the Month! This month's Mort is Ruby Thursday. Is that the cover girl from Comics Babes with Bowling Ball Heads Monthly? No, it's even worse. It's Ruby Thursday. Ruby, see, was this super smart scientist chick bent on world domination. So like any self-respecting quack who wanted to rule the earth, she decided to cut her own head off. Don't ask us how. And replace it with an organic computer. Then she joined the Headmen, a supervillain group that also included a monkey man, a guy with no bones, and a sideshow magician called Chandu the Mystic. Why? Well, as near as we can tell, when she lopped out her head off, she didn't bother to save her brain. Guess that explains a lot. Yeah, so I only know Ruby Thursday from the first issues of Sensational She-Hulk, because the Headmen were a group of bad guys that Jodber resurrected from I don't know where. I would love to know where they popped up originally. So anyway, yeah, it's one of those things where this is the strangest design, because it's like, you know, this like pretty standard women's supervillain body and then just this red marble for a head. It's, it's pretty bizarre. Anyway, there you go. There's our top 10 years of villains and board of the month. But hey, before we get out of here, how about a little bit of a casting call? So 
So this issue of Wizard Magazine featured a casting call for Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise, okay? Now, I don't know anybody out there that's a huge fan of Strangers in Paradise uh, to bring on as a guest to discuss this. So I'm just going to go through it real quick, give you my thoughts. Now, first up, for Kachu, they wanted Mira Sorvino, who they're referencing from Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, one of my favorite just goofy 90s comedies. I love it so much. And uh, I can see Mira playing that, but obviously not as a kind of screwball as Romeo and Michelle, because uh, she's definitely got kind of that serious, you know, more of a husky voice, and Kachu does have a background as a secret agent, so I could see that. For Francine, they wanted Jennifer Connelly, and now that I look at it, that pretty much is the perfect look. For David Parker, who is a character that I don't, like, know much to say about, like, I've read a few of these Strangers of Paradise with him in it, but they want B.D. Wong from Executive Decision. I was like, okay, that's fine. But also same, Freddie Fevers, who is Francine's sexist ex-boyfriend. They want Joey Slotnick, who they say was on The Single Guy at this time with Jonathan Silverman. Anybody remember that sitcom from Must TV? Ming-Na Wen was on it. Anyway, for Margie McCoy, uh, again, I don't know. I guess she's just their next-door neighbor. I've never seen any issues with her, but they wanted, hey, the one and only Christina Applegate, and that can't be a bad thing. For Rachel Hampton, who is this co-worker of Francine who dates her ex-boyfriend. I remember that. Or at least this guy that she dated briefly. They want Leah Thompson at this time from Carolina in the City, but then they're bringing on her blonde co-star from that series. His name is Malcolm Getz to play Chuck Jansen, who again is that other ex-boyfriend and this uh, Rachel gal just loves rubbing it in Francine's face that she's dating this guy. It's a strange relationship. Now, for Tambi Baker who I think, if I remember right, is another secret agent who used to work with Kachu, so she's kind of buff, kind of tough. They want the one and only Zap from American Gladiators, so hey, why not? Uh, For Miss Olivia Feinstein, I don't know who, again, who she is in the universe, but they want Catherine O'Hara. Yes, Catherine O'Hara. She is going to bring something hilarious and unique to every performance, man. Shit's Creek, she does amazing work. All right, Mrs. Darcy Parker. Now they want Joan Chen, who is from... Judge Dredd and Twin Peaks. That's quite a resume you got there. And finally, Detective Mike Walsh. Whenever they get to the end of these lists, it's always characters you have no idea who they are. But they want Reuben Blades, who said they say he was in the Super, that Joe Pesci movie, and The Color of Night. Yes, The Color of Night, where the one and only Bruce Willis uh, shows a little too much, if you get my drift. So there you go, a Strangers in Paradise casting call. If you have any opinions on that, why don't you share them with us on social media when we post this because yeah it's one of those things i'm actually kind of surprised that strangers of paradise at at least some terry moore series has not been adapted to television yet speaking of terry moore comics so i will say as a follow-up to our previous episode with my wife dr Kristen, the whole push of that episode is she gonna read a comic will she read terry moore will she read echo well i can tell you sort of so now you know how a lot of couples when they go to bed they like read in bed together well 
We've decided to do that, but she's having me read the comic book to her. So she's not really looking at the art. She just sits there next to me with her eyes closed while I inhabit all the characters. I have to come up with different voices. I'm doing an audio drama version of Echo by Terry Moore. So hey, <laughs> one step closer to her actually reading comics, at least getting familiar with comic book stories. But hey, to get you one step closer to the Wizards, the podcast guide to comics universe, why don't you go on over to social media at wizards comics on twitter at wizards underscore comics on instagram of course you can find our facebook group why don't you join our patreon you know we'd love to have you over there five bucks a month gets you those full scanned issues early released episodes that are uncut so you get all the flubs and extra conversation that didn't make it into the main episode release Plus, just a fun community to hang out in. Of course, as I mentioned before, our Heroes in Motion tier for just $2 more a month. You're getting a full bonus podcast. If you want to hear us talking about those superhero movies we all love so much, what it was like in the 90s when we were in a drought, and now, oh, it overfloweth. But either way, just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Stay connected. Next episode, of course, we have our Top Cow special. So look forward to that if you're a big Mark Silvestri, if you're a big Michael Turner fan. How about that Detron fella? Yeah. So all your favorites will be discussed and we'll be getting into our thoughts, especially me, a layman, somebody who's just started reading Top Cow comics now in preparation for the episode. But hey, again, you can go over to our Tee Public store if you want to get some Wizards merch. Yeah, get a logo t-shirt, wear it to conventions this summer. But hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.